0: In a jewelry store at Dietrich, Tennessee, in walks a man, dark-skinned with dreadlocks, pulling behind him by the wrist a taller blonde that was described as unkept and wearing shoes too big for her feet and a jacket far too big for her frame. The woman clerk greets them at the front counter, hoping to help the two, but also curious about the woman. The jewelry clerk can't shake the feeling she gets that something is off she can't put her finger on what it is the man demands the woman find something she likes as he walks away the clerk doing her job trying to nail down what the woman may be looking for all while watching the blonde and her frail physique something is off even though nothing is off she asks the woman's questions do you like this ring Do you like this necklace? And the man is becoming increasingly frustrated with his unmotivated companion. Pick something, anything, dragging her to case after case. In an effort, the clerk breaks code of working in the jewelry business and has too many pieces of jewelry out when the man with the dredge is giving her an uneasy feeling and walking back towards the girl's. A word is said as the clerk puts on her friendly voice and from behind is the manager watching intently, the only customers in the building. The case harboring the three diamond jewelry past, present, future catches the eye of the woman and the clerk knows this is something the woman likes. She has to try on a ring. She shows her a necklace and all while the woman stares at the three diamond jewels. Is this what you like? Is this what you want? The man asks the blonde woman, and she nods her head. Then you know what you have to do. And if you do, then I will come and get this for you. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. The clerk now knows her gut instincts were right. Something is off between the two. The clerk offers her hand to the woman, and the woman extends her right hand the hand that she's been concealing with a long sleeve of her jacket. And a gesture so innocent causes the woman to scream out in pain, for the hand she has been hiding is badly bruised and most definitely broken. Whatever this blonde woman has been through, it's been hell. It would be years before someone heard this story, and it was when the face of Jennifer Kessie took the nation by storm And more than a year following her disappearance is when the clerk in Tennessee realized the woman she forced to look at her and shake her hand was the daughter of Drew and Joyce Cassie. It would take the rise of a podcast based out of Florida whose only agenda was to help bring Jennifer back home before someone listened to the clerk and what she had told them on the hotline years before. The clerk is certain she crossed paths with Jennifer Cassie, three states away from where she had gone missing. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we close out coverage of this case. And even though it's ending here for us tonight on TCL, doesn't mean that this case has been solved. If you know anything regarding the whereabouts of Jennifer Kessie, please contact the family hotline at 941-201-4009 or Orlando Police Department at 321-235-5300 and ask for the detective covering Jennifer's case and don't hang up until you've spoken to them. Jennifer's family has been living with a hole in their lives for 16 years. It's time for them to know what happened to their daughter all those years ago. It's time for Jennifer to come home. Warning, this episode contains adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. Good evening all of my true crime nerds. Thank you all for tuning in tonight on the closeout episode of this case that grew cold before we even had a chance to get started. I have just a little bit to get to before we get started tonight. Remember to check out The True Crime Librarian on Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash the true crime librarian and join in on the behind the scenes and of course a bonus show to help you get through those moments when you've reached the end and are lost with what to listen to next. It's a great way to support the show and get something in return. You can always head over to the Librarian.com and make a one-time donation to the show to help keep it up and running. And if you'd like to support the show without a dime leaving your pocket, then review and recommend. This is exceptionally helpful to make sure the show reaches other nerds like yourself. Now, to what you all came here for, the true crime. So, last week we took a page from the podcast, Unconcluded, and talked about what the evidence showed compared to when Jennifer went missing. With the water in the shower and a damp towel spread out to dry, we know that Jennifer had to have been there the morning of January 24th. Too much happened inside of that unit that morning, And it was too much of Jennifer's typical routine to argue that someone came in and staged it to make it look like she was there that morning. I could get behind some staging. But with what the Kessies knew of how Jennifer liked to ready herself for the day and what occurred, it would take someone so close to her to pull off a crime scene staging of this magnitude. We also talked of the leasing employee over at Northbridge at Millennial Lake and the sighting of Jennifer in the week before she went missing and the event that occurred at the roundabout the night before Jennifer vanished. Is it all enough to change the trajectory of this case? I don't know. But it could be a new starting point that leads to how this case can end and how Jennifer's return to those she loves Being missing for 16 years, there is some thought in the back of everyone's mind that Jennifer will be coming home to be laid to rest. It's not the outcome anyone wants and the hope that she can come home alive will never be let go of until we know for sure. As much as getting Jennifer home is important, so is bringing justice for Jennifer to whoever did this. The luckiest person of interest ever is all we have to go on in putting someone responsible for this crime, but with the security footage being nothing more than a burst of photos every three seconds, we don't have much else. If I'm honest, it's not a lot. This is a puzzle that requires you to go and hunt down the pieces, and it's not easy. It makes you think about things you never wanted to And it's making all of us look at the face value of people much differently than we're accustomed to. Tonight, I'm going to kick off with a man that who his name came up very early into the investigation, but whether or not he was seriously looked at did not occur for a couple of years following the disappearance of Jennifer. And I'm talking about the man named Chino. Now, those who need to know his name, know his name. Um, There's speculation of who he is out there. He's been very forthcoming with what he knows about Jennifer's disappearance, so I'm not really sure he fits the bill, but a lot of people do think he is guilty. We're going to call him Gino because that's the name that came up in the investigation, and it doesn't really do anybody any good knowing his real name because I'm not even sure investigators even consider him as being a person of interest in this case anymore. But he did come in very early. His name was being said repeatedly. So if this investigation takes off and, and we find that Chino is guilty, I'll eat my words. It's okay. So when investigators were able to arrive on scene to Jennifer's disappearance later that night on Monday, the 24th, questions were being asked. Well, of course, with all the construction going on in the complex, it was very obvious that they were going to get a list of names of who was working in those construction company. Now, we know that there was a lot of undocumented workers because this company had a list of its employees. And then some of the employees were strictly under the table kind of business thing going on and names and stuff like that weren't exchanged and there wasn't paperwork filed, especially if they were not a citizen of the United States. So that murkied up this investigation very early on. Within 36 hours. They had names, they had background checks going on, and investigators decided they were going to start talking to some of these men, and they started with a gentleman named Ben. He was one of the other maintenance workers that had entered Jennifer's condos in the days leading up to her disappearance, and I say in the days, sometime in the month of January. Ben and Chino performed the task asked by Jennifer in her work order. And like the very cautious person she was, Jennifer was on the phone with Drew when they came into her unit. Through the phone, he heard Jennifer tell them what she specifically wanted done and then reports that she told Ben and Chino to lock up after you're done. And Drew said, no, that's not what was said. That's not the case. The the theory is that she said that, you know, call me when you're done and I will come home and lock up. This is a very another well not a very this is another part of Jennifer's cautious nature. She wouldn't rely on somebody she didn't trust or didn't know to lock up her apartment and not do something like leave a window unlocked so that they could re-enter the home later with her home or her not home and rob her blind. Jennifer wouldn't have trusted them not to do something very shady like that. investigators learned talking through these people that some of the workers that were working spoke Spanish only and due to the two investigators working the case not knowing the language they chose to talk to those individuals at quote a later time when an interpreter could be present so my two cents or my opinion doesn't hold much but Why delay the interviews when you could have made a call back to the police department and said, hey, I need a Spanish speaking interpreter over here. We've got some that we need to question and not necessarily delay the interviews, but wait until somebody could get there that was fluid in the language you needed. Not to mention that Orlando has universities and has schools that specialize in foreign language. If you couldn't get one through the police department, who's to say you couldn't call over and been like, I need somebody to come and help interpret it, uh, an investigation. It's not unheard of. If it's a language you are not familiar with, you should have reached out and tried every opportunity to have somebody there to help you fill the questions and break that, that communication barrier down. Can I say that they dropped the ball here? Yeah, I can Um, The longer you go Without investigating, without questioning Certain people The foggier the memory becomes And it's not very reliable You know The longer that goes Why would you Willingly Extend the clock and wait For that to happen It's just It blows my mind Either way, questioning started happening and Chino, his name came up very early in the questioning, but because they had ran background checks, Chino came back without any kind of criminal record, so they weren't really looking at him very early on in the investigation. Two years later, we get some fresh eyes on this and Chino's name is on repeat So they decide, let's go talk to him some more and see what he's got to say. Well, when they find Chino, he's in prison. He committed aggravated sexual assault on a minor. And in the state of Florida, that means someone under the age of 18, uh, they're considered a minor. So the age of these individuals and the names of these individuals are typically redacted from case files in order to maintain anonymity. I'm sure if I filed, you know, Freedom of Information Act, I could figure out Chino's crime specifically and the age. But that's not what we're here to do. I'm I'm not going to overly investigate the background of somebody. I'm not convinced that is a part of this. And here's why. Because when they found him in prison, the new investigators... They went over to talk to Chino and Chino is very forthcoming about what happened that day and what he had done when he was in Jennifer's unit. And, you know, he, he saw her around the complex. Who didn't? She's a very beautiful woman. If she walked past you, she would have caught your eye. But he says, and he's very adamant that he had nothing to do with her disappearance. He agreed to take a polygraph, which we all know is not admissible but typically we use it to determine whether or not we need to hanker down and get pretty assertive with our questioning in a suspect. Well, Chino had no qualms. He took the polygraph test and according to the FBI polygraph examiner, he quote, passed with flying colors, end quote. So Chino Passed his polygraph, which, you know, if you're one of those people who can stay pretty lax, you're probably going to pass it, even though you're guilty. Um, so do we take it at face value? Not necessarily. But this was, you know, he's serving time for his very first criminal act. It is aggravated sexual assault of a minor. It would flag people. I know that's what y'all are saying right now. This is a huge red flag on Chino. He has this aggravated charge. Right. But still, I'm not convinced. (laughs) I like that he was very forthcoming. I like that he was willing to talk to people because he says, quote, he has nothing to hide. So the question pains. Do you believe that Chino had nothing to do with Jennifer? In the beginning, I will admit... When I started looking into this case and diving in the depths that I typically do, I liked Chino as a suspect. I was like, "Man, he fits the bill. He was there. He had opportunity. He has the know-how. You know, he definitely could have been the person of interest in that in that um, footage." I liked this. It looks really good. But as you start digging, Tino seems to be the smokescreen of this investigation as well. So much attention is on him. They're not seeing what's past him. Okay. So, you know, even though he was named, I just, I don't know. I don't, I'm not convinced. I'm sure somebody out there is going to harp on me and be like, you know, Chino's no saint. No, he's not. But I'm, I'm still, mm, I, I really think that if we're looking at Chino, we're looking in the wrong direction. Okay, so I want to talk about a new person. And this is some co-workers of Jennifer. And she was having some problems with. In fact, she turned to her parents for some advice on how to handle the situation. A gentleman named Johnny Campos was a colleague of Jennifer's at Westgate Resorts, and the story goes Johnny would make inappropriate comments about Jennifer and her appearance, and he often asked her out despite her repeated no. Jennifer was very adamant that work and play do not mix, meaning she wasn't looking for an office romance. Even more concerning is Johnny was a married man. But the laws of marriage didn't seem to keep him from wondering, his wandering eye seeking Jennifer. In comes another very suspicious co worker of Jennifer's that claims to have witnessed several of these pursuits for dates. He goes by the alias Adam Frank. Um, you will see this name more times than you can count when you're looking into this case. And initially going into his story with an open mind, you're quick to jump to blame Johnny for Jennifer's disappearance. And I'll be the first to admit I wouldn't mark either of these two men off of your list. They are way too suspicious and I've got a lot of burning questions that are unanswered. I don't like any sort of crushing that was occurring from Johnny. Now, if the tables store turned and it was, in fact, Adam Frank being the pursuer, It makes him look guilty. Either way, I'm following my gut because it's leading back to here. I opened up tonight's episode with the retelling of the jewelry clerk out of Tennessee. Do I think the woman that clerk saw on that day was Jennifer. It's possible. Only because there's nothing. I'm willing to eliminate as a possible at this time. I know I said I don't believe Chino is involved and I don't. I believe the leasing employee and I'm believing this lady in Deacherd, Tennessee. I don't know. the story, I think it's going to be one of those really wild, unbelievable stories once we figure out what happened. So I'm not willing to mark anything completely off of my list. I do have things that are not as high up in priority but not marking this off knowing the leasing employee story which we talked about last week and now finding out about the inappropriate behavior going on at the office i i think this one may be our best lead now could that lead to jennifer being in tennessee and drug around by a very dark complected man. Maybe. I if I'm a hundred percent honest, I'm not sure Jennifer was completely upfront when she was asking her parents for advice on how to handle this situation that was going on at work. So let me let me talk about Adam Frank and a complaint that came into the higher-ups after Jennifer's disappearance. And we're gonna go over this story and you kind of tell me where you're at in your mind. So the story goes, Adam reports to upper management that before Jennifer's disappearance, Johnny had talked to him about Jennifer and her relationship with Rob, calling him a British asshole. And he didn't understand what Jennifer was seeing inside of him. And he would often complain to Adam about how attracted he was to Jennifer and how she wouldn't even bother to give him the time of day. According to Adam, he told Johnny that he shouldn't say things like this because you're a married man, dude. Don't, you know, dude, you're straying. Why? Then something like this comes up. And on the morning of January 16th, this is following finding out the news that Jennifer was going to be heading to the Caribbean with Rob for a long weekend. Johnny was late to work this morning because he had been pulled over for a minor traffic violation that morning but he was very chaotic and in turn it caused Johnny to spend some time behind bars and when I say time I say hours not, not days. Johnny became irate after receiving his traffic ticket and then he decided tearing it up in front of the officer's face was a great idea and maybe using some not so friendly language. Also not a great idea. It all led to the officer deciding to arrest Johnny. Now Johnny's wife had to go bail him out after he had time to cool off and Johnny proceeds to come to work and tell Adam that he can't understand, you know, he's on it again. What is, what is she seeing in Rob? Why are they going on this trip? Yada, 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 blah, 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 poor bitch baby. Why not me? Then comes the morning that Jennifer went missing. And again, this is according to Adam's statement, Johnny is approximately four hours to late on the morning of January 24th. This is not confirmed by other staff members. They do not remember him being late that morning, but I don't know. If he was late... The four hours, he would have had time to be at Jennifer's condo at when she left for work. He'd have time to do whatever the hell he wanted to to Jennifer or whatever happened. And he had time to drop the car off at Huntington on the Green and return to work in those hours he was late. And Adam says that once Johnny came in that afternoon, Johnny was very erratic and he was pacing in his office. And not really putting any effort into his job duties that day. Again, it's not supported by other members of the staff. They don't recall his actions being this way on that day. But this is the statement. Adam then begins to talk to Johnny. And what happened to Jennifer. And, you know, you know how sad this was. And, you know, all of that. When... Adam says that Johnny said, quote, she's probably ate up by gators by now, end quote. And again, Adam chastises him for his statement because he didn't want to believe that his friend Jennifer was dead and he couldn't believe that Johnny was talking in such a way. So shortly after this incident about how gators may have, you know, ate Jennifer, Adam Files the proper paperwork for a grievance against Johnny. Claiming the following: that following Jennifer's disappearance. Johnny became very verbally harassing to Adam. And he was making for an extremely uncomfortable work environment. But this is where it gets a little shady. Because Adam. Frank. A.K.A. We're not going to say his name because I'm not really 100% sure. Is handed a pink slip. Adam was fired from Westgate Resorts following his grievance. So this raises suspicion against Adam. Why fire him if the claims were valid, right? If Johnny was the person making like hell for Jennifer at work, why would the company whose CFO picked up the phone personally to call and check on Jennifer cover for an employee that may be involved in her disappearance? So now the questions are pinging in the back of your mind, right? What if it was Adam? Those who need to know Adam's real name know his n- real name. Um, there's a speculated name that floats around on the internet. And if you want to know, you can, you know, Google it. But like I said, somebody with authority hasn't come out to confirm this identity identity and I'm not going to say it because I know what it could do to his life if we all start saying he's this guy and he's the you know if we're wrong we could tear apart this person's life so until somebody comes out and says with confirmation Adam Frank is this person and we believe this person is a person of interest in this case I'm not saying anything about who his real name is. But there's that possibility. Now that we know that Adam was fired after the grievance, That Adam. May have been projecting what he had done. To Jennifer. On to Johnny. And then instead Adam was the one that was overly infatuated. And in order to pull some of the attention off of himself. And put it on to another. He. He was looking to derail the investigation. This statement would have been something that makes sense, right? So I guess the question that is here is, was Johnny Campos so in love with Jennifer that he abducted her and did who knows what to her because she kept deflecting all of his overly forward advances or was Adam the one that sought out Jennifer Time and time again, only to be turned down over and over. And he was the one that was actually involved in this whole situation. Now, going back to North Bridge Complex, the leasing employee over there was shown a photo of Johnny Campos and asked, Is this possibly the man you saw with Jennifer on that night at the roundabout? And she says it looks very similar to the man, but she could not guarantee he was the that Johnny Campos was the man she saw that night but he did resemble that guy now i'm not really sure if she was ever shown a photo of adam frank and if she was how you know that comparison came out i don't know if she hasn't been and she can be shown a picture of adam frank will he look more like the man that was at the roundabout with the woman she believes was Jennifer that night on the 23rd. I've got a lot of questions coming up right here. Like I said, time and time again, the more you look at this case, the more questions you're left with and the less answers you seem to find. But for me, I don't know what it is about this leasing employee and it could be because I heard the conviction in the way she sold her, you know told her story. I really, really want to believe Jennifer was there the night on the 23rd, and I really want to believe the man she was with or the men she was with are those who are responsible for what happened to her the following morning. I think that if we can nail down who those people were, or at least one of those people, We could have a break in this case. Because this for me is the most logical route. But in my gut it's telling me. It's going back to either Johnny or Adam. I have a feeling these two. One of them is more involved in this case than they should be. And I just. I can't seem to shake it. So this is my theory that I am stuck on right now and I don't know I could be completely off base I don't know I don't know you guys I'm just feeling around in the dark for the light switch and I haven't found it yet so going back to the beginning of tonight's episode and talking about Dietrich and the sighting that occurred there following Jennifer's disappearance and what that could mean for this investigation Many of you who've been secretly taking deep dives in true crime for years know where I'm going with this and this Tennessee angle, human trafficking. The year before Jennifer Kessie disappeared, Natalie Holloway's face became the poster for the world and for the crime, human trafficking. Natalie was just 18 years old when she went missing from her trip in Aruba, which if you know your geography well, you know It's in the Caribbean's and what else is in the Caribbean's St. Croix where Jennifer vacationed days before she disappeared. Like Natalie, Jennifer was a young blonde woman. Both had visited the islands which have grown a name for itself in the abduction of women who are later sold through these human trafficking rings and this crime has become one of the crimes at the forefront in investigation work We've all seen Taken by with Liam Neeson Where he heroically tracks down The people who took his daughter And come to the end of the movie He triumphs by killing everyone Involved with the, his daughter's disappearance And orchestrated selling Women on the black market To men in the Trafficking business And I wish I could say that this crime Was traceable But it's not a traceable track in human trafficking is a very rare gem. It's not like you can type into Google how to purchase humans or find an Amazon style website that you can just go on and pick all these people who've been abducted. Many, many, many social media posts out there say that Wayfair is how these people are transported. And believe me, I want to know you know why a, an unextraordinary cabinet costs twelve or twenty thousand dollars, but I'm not sure if I actually believe they are trading cash for people through Wayfair. So mm, I don't. I just can't see it happening. So openly and almost innocent, like I'd like to say that I hope that Wayfair was looked into on these claims, but I'm not sure, and I'm not going to go there. That's not where I'm going. I'm just trying to point out that human trafficking and its inner workings are still very much a mystery today as they were in, 20, in 2005, in 2006. We know of women, and if you don't know, just type in survivors of human trafficking. People have come out on the other side with their lives. Their bodies breathe and function like they were intended to do, but their mental deficits are very real and absolutely terrifying. So, how does this all play into our case? When I was doing some digging on Dietrich in in Tennessee, I came across some forums that were talking about Jennifer's photo being on an online dating profile. And the home location for that account was set for Knoxville, Tennessee. Lo and behold, there's Jennifer staring right back at everybody, saying she's in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, does this give the account from the jewelry store some weight? Not necessarily, but it's possible. Let's look at this a little bit more, shall we? The man described as being with Jennifer in the jewelry store was an African American, but not with a chocolate-colored skin complexion he was described as a very dark black man with very well kept dreads if he had an accent it was not strong enough to be noted or have attention drawn to it because the clerk does not mention whether there was an accent the vision of this guy i come up with is very similar to the men you may see originate from this very sandy, desired destination. The other feature that the woman clerk noted was he had a very wide nose. Again, another feature you will see into the natives of this area. They have a very broad bridge to their nose. So, maybe something had happened on the trip to St. Croix. Nothing obviously notable to Robert Jennifer but possibly notable to someone who Jennifer caught their eye so let's just go into something hypothetical here okay what if Jennifer was followed back to the states by whoever wanted Jennifer for their inventory in the game of human trafficking maybe not necessarily a guy lurking back in the shadows watching but maybe while in St. Croix some information was obtained about where Jennifer was from about the trip to St. Croix and who she was with. And it was all shared in a very innocent way, but the information held value to the person who really wanted it. And they were able to track her back stateside, and someone who was stateside was able to pick up the following of Jennifer. Again, remember a very big what if. Now, you want to know how this Johnny Campos arguing at the roundabout Adam Frank thing wraps all into this right it's very possible that a crime passion didn't arise from either men depending on who was the one actually infatuated Jennifer instead it created an uncomfortable yet innocent work environment the incident at the roundabout was just that and an incident And maybe the woman just looks similar to Jennifer. Or if it was her, it became the biggest diversion to throw off an investigation known to man. Okay. You know, it happened, but there's no correlation with the disappearance. It's possible. Jennifer may not have been aware of someone following her because her attention was drawn to this high school crush bullshit. So her mind is on this. And how to finally extinguish it all and keep her job, which she loved. And this allowed Jennifer, who was generally a very cautious person, to let her guard down as she left for work that morning. And it provided the best possible window for the person who was following her from the Caribbeans to abduct her. Theory he is she was abducted in the hallway that led to her unit where her front door was. Yet another theory is out there that there was a van unmarked parked next to the space that Jennifer's car was assigned to park in. And that is where the abduction occurred. So, if you are a TCG fan, you know, ban the van. We don't like that. We don't like these work vans. They provide too much concealment for shit like this to happen. How It would be real easy slide that door open, grab her, pull her in, shut the door, pull out and go, and not a person seeing it, because if you blinked, you missed, right? So, are y'all still following me here? (laughs) So, my gut tells me Johnny Campos and Adam Frank are involved. I could be wrong. These two men thought they were in love with Jennifer because she was beautiful, and I'm not denying she wasn't. And all of that created enough chaos for Jennifer's attention to be there instead of doing what she normally thought was right in protecting herself by being on the phone when she left in the mornings. And it just gave them enough time that her guard was down that they were able to take her. And nobody see? I know some of you are probably calling me on my bullshit and hell, I'm sitting here making notes going... You watch too many movies, Ashley. But honestly, I have another theory that would cause you to drop me like a bad habit. So we aren't going to talk about it. But trust me when I say it's one hell of a stretch from even this human trafficking possibility. I think it's possible. I really do. I think Jennifer was abducted. And she might have been kept in an area where she was out of the public for so many days, so many weeks, so many months. To allow a window of opportunity. For her to be transported. And. Up to Tennessee. Now. Don't y'all come at me. And say how impossible it would be. Because it's not. I mean think back. Ariel Castro kept three girls in his house. And one of those girls lived in the same freaking neighborhood. And he had them captive. For nine plus years. So to keep them out of the the line of sight of people seeing her and being like oh my god I know that person and you, you abducted her yeah keep her boarded up in a house tied to a radiator it's not impossible it's not a far stretch and once whoever had ordered the kidnapping felt like it was safe they moved her and she is just being transient and going to where the business is And the interaction inside of the jewelry store may have been a trip to help motivate Jennifer into doing or performing for clients who were looking to make purchases of human beings. So the you know what you have to do bullshit was an effort to get her to accept her fate and possibly the dating profiles that that popped up with Jennifer's image were a way to put her out there in this world. We don't know how it operates. We have an idea of how it operates, but we do not know for sure, okay? And every crime ring is different than the other. It's like parenting. You see the mistakes. When you become a parent, you do it differently. You watch other people fail at human trafficking, and you do it differently. It creates some very successful crime families. It just does. The more I look at this case, the more cross-eyed I go, you guys. It's just... I want every person who said that they've seen Jennifer in the days, months, years since her disappearance to be a person who really actually interacted with her. And thus, it provides a sliver of hope that her coming home alive is possible. You know, we talk about this POI that is labeled luckiest POI ever, What if this case was nothing more than one big ball of crap that even though she was living with various scenarios going on and them happening at the same time was like some god-awful unlucky alignment of the stars and none of them really correlate to the other and none of them really tie to how she was abducted. And, and whatever else happened to her I mean it could just be like the worst day ever where everything comes crashing down on you 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 have this inappropriateness going on at work with colleagues and you're focused on that and instead you did something weird at St. Croix that caught the eye of a man who wants to now sell you into slavery Yeah, I don't know I don't know. I do know I want hope that we can find Jennifer and bring her home alive because she is so deserving of a happy life, and I don't want to lose that hope by thinking she may never get her chance. Am I on to here? You know, am I on to something here? On my crazy wild theory? Very doubtful. <laughs> I'm. I'm not ever going to be convinced that I'll help solve a case, um, especially because I don't like covering cases that are cold. I like to have answers, but sometimes these cases don't have answers, and I have a hard time accepting that. I just, everything Jennifer knew to do in order to draw attention to herself in a situation where she was uncomfortable, it failed her, and that's not the kind of world I want to live in. I have one more encounter that I want to talk about before we wrap this case up here on TTCL and this is going to pull us back to huntington on the Green. So, from what I can decipher in the mountains of information that one can collect on this case, at the time in 2006, Huntington-on-the-Grain Green was not exactly the safest complex to live in. It had its own dark secret, so her case coming back here is eerily fitting. If you look at Jen's car, you will find that her seat was pushed back to the furthest most point inside. If you look at all the data, even though most investigators are tossing this out as reliable, the POI stands five foot three, five foot five, but I don't know. I just don't. I think they're taller. This is a height level that wouldn't warrant someone pushing the seat that far back and jennifer wasn't tall enough to have her seat there naturally so who drove the car and was the seat just pushed back intentionally in order to throw investigators off quite possibly it's nothing to pull and shove the sheet the seat back and all of a sudden you go from five foot three to six foot five you know It would throw people off. And I think that's another reason why investigators are throwing this height approximation out the window. If he was or she was standing five foot three, five foot five at the time, I would venture to guess they're much taller just by the size of their feet. They had really large feet in the photographs. And to me, that either says you are taller than what we're guesstimating or you would have become taller after the incident and really it just the height needs to go out the window but i reference it here because it wouldn't warrant somebody to push the seat to the furthest most position to drive the vehicle but it would i mean they were 32 seconds in that vehicle they could have shoved the seat back wiped their shit off got out and it wouldn't have taken them a blink of an eye. The same day that Jennifer went missing, January 24th, a woman who lived inside of Huntington on the Green had been released from work early and once she left work, she went to the store to pick up some stuff for her house and drove back to her apartment. As she was unloading these items, a woman, a blonde with some features similar to Jennifer, walked to her and started to talk to her. And it was The way this lady says the story, it was almost like Jennifer just wanted her to look at her and to see her face. And if Jennifer believed that she was in danger to a degree that she needed this added attention, I can see her doing that if she was in a position to get this far away from whoever kidnapped her. I mean, because she freely walked up to her to strike up a conversation, giving, you know, hopefully, investigators and eyewitness to seeing her that day and hopefully putting together these clues a lot faster than what they have. And I could see Jennifer taking advantage of this kind of opportunity. As long as she didn't fear immediate retaliation from whoever she was in the parking lot with. This woman remembers she was in a hurry and based off of the reputation of the complex, she didn't give Jennifer the attention she now... Realizes she needed. The other thing to point out is she was very sure that it happened around three o'clock that afternoon. We know the car was parked around noon, thanks to timestamps and video footage, but we never see anyone walking with the POI. So the assumption is the person was leaving alone, leaving us to ask, Where was Jennifer? She thought that maybe the woman was needing a phone. The lady in the parking lot thought the blonde was needing like a phone or someone to, you know, something to call somebody because she was being abused by her boyfriend or something along these lines. Um, And don't y'all begin judging her and, you know, convicting her of a crime just yet. In the end, a man walked over, who was taller than the blonde woman, and dragged her away. Once the lady gets into her apartment and she tells her husband what had just happened, he instructed her to not get involved. Living in a complex like this, sad but true, most of the time is you don't want to insert yourself where trouble is. You want to get it far away from her. So, her husband coming back and be like, mm, don't put your nose in there. You know, it's not unheard of. It happens all the time. And it's not a reason to, you know, convict this woman of not coming forward later in Jennifer's investigation. It would be much later that this woman and her encounter would come to light for investigators. And because of that, again, we have thanks to those who over at Unconcluded and their awesome work on this case. I cannot speak more highly of them. And those of you who are a first time listener here at TTCL, don't go bombarding me of how I went off on their coverage. I'm not attempting to steal their hard work. They did an incredible job. If I was trying to take credit for what they did, I would not be saying their name so often in my case, and I sure as hell wouldn't send you over there to listen to what they've covered thus far. The reason I've used their information in developing my case here on TCCL is because that was the sole purpose of their show. The only reason these two guys started this was to figure out what happened to Jennifer Kessie. There's no book floating. Well, I mean, there is a book. I've told y'all. The ratings on that thing is horrible, and I think it's 200 pages at best, so it's like a novella of true crime. It's not up to par with my standards and with my research standards or my comfortability of using it as a reliable source, so it's out the window. I mean, if you're really curious about this book, you can pick up a copy on Amazon for pretty cheap and you can be your own critic, but don't say I didn't warn you. I use them because I trust them enough to know their resources are reliable and that the information they are sharing is something they themselves would believe to be plausible. I have a few podcasts I keep in my back pocket that I can rely on to give me a good rundown of what's going on in a case that is unfamiliar to me. But not very many podcasts hold that title. So yes, they are a source of my research. But I'm in no way stealing their work. I'm trying to pass it off as my own. I'm not. They did an incredible job. And I'm lucky to have found them. And have been listening to them for a while. So their research has brought back all of this and this is brought forth some of these people saying I saw Jennifer here the leasing off employee she was brought through unconcluded the jewelry store clerk unconcluded and now this lady from Huntington on the green who may have had this interaction with Jennifer again unconcluded did this work when you are diving this deep into a case like this, you have to have reliable sources. You have to trust where your research is coming from. I can scour the internet and I can read multiple forums out there discussing Jennifer cases. And there have been a few people who make a good case for their opinion of what happened that day. But if I can't provide enough evidence, I'm not going to say anything. And that's where I am with my show. That's how I choose to approach this. So my half concocted theory, I didn't share because I don't have evidence there just to support my claims just yet. Maybe one day I will and then I can come forward. But unless I can find something supportive, I'm not going to repeat the information. It doesn't do you any justice. It doesn't do me any justice. It doesn't do the case any justice. It's just stupid to play the mockingbird. You know, we're not, I'm not here to repeat everything I heard. I'm not here to repeat everything I read because some of it just doesn't make any sense. And this case is hard to investigate. It's hard to research because there's very little out there, because there's very little known. So I hope the woman who believes that she saw Jennifer in the parking lot at Huntington on the Green actually interacted with Jennifer because it gives hope that Jennifer is still alive. Jennifer is a bright soul that walked out of her apartment on January 24, 2006 and was never seen again. Piecing this puzzle together has been difficult from the start because what you are looking at is the pieces that were found scattered throughout Jennifer's life. Witnesses who didn't realize what they were seeing hold vital information and now they're coming forward to tell us their account and what they remember. 16 years leaves a lot of unknowns still out there in Orlando. Who was the person with Jennifer at the roundabout? Who was with Jennifer at the sighting at Huntington on the Green? Why were track dogs capable of following the scent from her car at Huntington on the Green to where she parked at Mosaic at Millennia? Can an infatuation lead to something far more sinister than a crime of passion? Or was Jennifer abducted and used in human trafficking too many correlations with this story. Too many people are recounting their interactions with Jennifer following her disappearance. Theories continue to arise because not having an answer is worse than knowing what happened. People do not vanish into thin air. Someone is responsible for making this woman vanish without a trace. Again, if you know anything involving Jennifer and her disappearance, please call the Kessie family hotline at 941 or Orlando Police Department at 321-235-5300 and ask to speak with the detective working Jennifer's case and don't hang up until you've spoken to them. Let's bring Jennifer home. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight, closing out TTCL's coverage of what happened to Jennifer Kessie. If you'd like to hear more about this case or get even deeper into what is known, I urge you to dig around yourself, scour the forums, read through the posts of people's opinions, and listen to others' coverage of this case and never stop until Jennifer is found and brought home. Even if that means she's coming home to rest peacefully. Join me next week as we kick off the high profile case you all weighed in on last season. The damsel of death herself, Miss Aileen Warnos. Was she a monster like they painted her to be, or was she a victim of a vicious cycle that finally ended when the state of Florida executed her for her crimes? There is no recommended reading for this case because no one has seriously picked up a book deal and really started investigating Jennifer's case in order to put a book together. So instead, I'll give you a fiction book, The Chain by Adrian McKinty. It follows one mother's resolve to get her daughter, who had been abducted, back and alive and take down the very people who were responsible for taking her away. As always, I leave you with one last line. Accept the past without regret. Handle your presence with confidence and face your future without fear. Much love, the True Crime Librarian.